Welcome to The Uncertainties, the podcast for 20-somethings who don't quite have their shit together yet. I'm your host, Karis, and I started this podcast because the last few years have been a huge learning curve for me, entering the world of work, moving out of my family home, trying and often failing to live up to the challenges of being a fully-fledged adult. It can be overwhelming at the best of times, and I know that I'm not the only person who feels like this because I'm going to be speaking to a bunch of my friends and people that I admire about the struggles that they have faced and how they are able to absolutely smash life. Today's episode is a little different from the usual framework because I have the absolute pleasure of chatting to Franz Bohm, a German-born, hot docs winning film director and producer whose work centres around youth resistance, activism and social issues. He is the director of Dear Future Children, a powerful documentary nominated for the 2021 First Steps Awards, following the life of activists in Hong Kong, Uganda and Chile. So Franz, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Garis. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. And I'm really excited to speak with you. Absolutely. Um, and I think the reason that I felt like this documentary kind of had a home at the uncertainties because it is a little bit different to the stuff that um, we usually do on this podcast is because this is a documentary that really um, highlights the quite severe anxieties felt by young people today um, who are feeling really deeply uncertain about the future, the future of, of the planet and, and how they exist in the world that we live in, um, whether or not that's climate or environmental issues or conflict that is happening, for example, in, in Hong Kong and a desire for kind of democratic reform, they all have this kind of burgeoning fear about the future and this uncertainty of what the future is going to look like. And so I felt like it really um, kind of struck through to the to what this whole podcast is about. But firstly, what I wanted to do is go way back, way back before you started doing uh, Dear Future Children and actually talk about just you. What to you did you feel came first? Was it your activism or was it your filmmaking? Or was it, do you feel like they were kind of intertwined? Oh, interesting. That's that's a very, very interesting question. I think um, filmmaking definitely sort of came first i uh, i developed a very high you know fascination for the whole world of filmmaking at a very very young age um, i mean i can speak about this very very earnestly and openly is you know just the fact that i i lost my my father at quite a young age and the resulting crisis or the resulting situation was pretty much defined by me um, being alone quite a lot. Uh, my mother, you know, had three different jobs, which I obviously am so grateful for and which I totally understand. Um, but there I was just having, you know, I just experienced this, this traumatic experience um, and didn't really have anyone at the moment or at this specific moment to, to speak to. Um, and I still had to, as you know, I think your your podcast description is so amazing because I still had to get my shit together <laughs> during yeah. that time. You know, mm-hmm. there was school, there was friends, there was you know family issues, obviously. But I learned about myself, or I experienced that just watching a film um, every evening helped me a lot during this very challenging time. Um, and I think at this age, you know, around 
11 or 12, um, I just watched quite a lot of films. Films really helped me to, um, you know, to keep going. Um, and at quite a young age, I also developed a high fascination for everything that's going on behind the camera. Um, and I, you know, started researching, read a few books about um, how a film set actually works, what a director actually does, what a producer does, all that stuff. Um, and then at the age of 13, I just randomly applied to to a few film sets um, as a set runner, which is sort of the, you know, entry-level position. Um, and I must say, you know, on the first real film set that I worked on, I um, immediately fell in love with this whole process. Um, I think with the first few projects that I was able to realize, I, I think I realized two things. First of all, as soon as you are in a leading position in a film project, let's say as a director or as a producer, you obviously have a shared responsibility for the whole team and how you are leading this project, how you're treating your team members, how you're planning the days will affect them all. And also, and I think that's the second big thing I learned is that films have a real power and the stories that you choose to tell obviously it does matter. And films have the ability to, you know, shed a light or to spotlight specific social, is social issues, you know, which can present also international conflicts in a more accessible way, in a more understandable way, um, and can still be entertaining. Firstly, I just want to say I'm so sorry to hear about the loss of your your father. Um, that must be really, really difficult. But um, I also absolutely understand and agree with that feeling of the power of film and that escapist quality of it. And I think it's incredible that um, at quite a, you know at such a young age you really took on that like level of responsibility. Is there a particular film or documentary? that has really inspired you, whether or not it's inspired you into um, action, maybe it had a, a really profound effect on you or it inspired you into filmmaking? Projects that inspired me. I think one film that I can mention is um, All the President's Men, um, which I think has been quite important to me personally because, you know, you have this Watergate issue this this historic scandal in a way and i think this film does a really good job at sort of telling the story in an accessible yet entertaining and good way i mean it shows that you know politically interesting films with a clear message and with a really fascinating and important topic can still be just a good film when you were beginning to kind of realize that this is the type of thing that you wanted to do, what pushed you towards documentary um, instead of doing it through more of like a fictional um, feature uh, narrative, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I have to say, um, first of all, that the next project that we are developing right now um, will also be fictional. The reason why... I'm doing this so I think that um, you know take your future children we as a young 
core team, we had a really high fascination for young activism for a specific topic. And when we first spoke about this project, when we first thought about um, what this project can be, we never thought, oh, okay, so this has to be a documentary or this has to be 90 minutes long. We were just interested in how can we tell this story or this topic, this theme in the best way. And that has been the case with all um, my projects so far. I always just ask myself, okay, so we have, let's say, you know, youth, homeless um, people in Berlin. Um, how can we, or how can I serve their stories in the best way? Can it be a podcast or can it be a book or it has maybe perhaps it could be an article and only if film is really the best medium to do this, I would pursue it. And if film is the best medium, I then ask myself, you know, okay, so should it be a short format perhaps, or can it be a small series perhaps, or do we have to go in for the whole sort of feature length film? And if yes, should we, you know, accompany some of these individuals for a long time, or is it perhaps better to get access to their stories and tell them with, you know, with actors in a, in a fictionalized way? And I think these big questions are always the first ones for me personally, when I approach a project. I was just wondering, so these, the people that you um, profile, I guess, in this documentary are incredible young activists who I just wholeheartedly admire for everything that they're doing. Um, you have the stories of Rayan, Hilda and Pe Pepper. And I'm just wondering, how did these stories specifically, uh, you know, come in, come onto your radar? How did you find them? I mean, amazing question. Uh, obviously, quite a long, quite a long journey. But uh, I think everything started in various pubs in London, actually, where we as a, again, as a core team, as a young core team met many times and just discussed and spoke about this project. We spoke about young activism. We read everything that was available. We read all the books. We obviously watched every single, also old documentaries about, you know, young resistance, about certain movements and all that. And we just, we all had the feeling that you know, this was in 2019, we all had the feeling that young activism is on the rise and that so many young people all across the globe are requesting and fighting for a seat on the table. Mm -hmm. And we were just wondering, we were feeling it, we were just wondering how can we sort of portray, how can we highlight this specific process in a way and what we realized by watching all the sort of small documentary clips or tv clips about the young activism is that most of the times it felt like the reporters were quite rushed and were quite were on a quite a lot of pressure to do these interviews and sort of grab the first person they could find and just ask them everything mm. um and we also realized that most of the times there were people from the older generation reporting about 
the younger generation, often featuring experts which also have been older. You know, there were, so there were you had sixty to seventy year old people speaking about the challenges of young activism, and we always yeah. just thought, can we just ask them directly? We started collecting movements in a way, so we were looking at various movements across the globe, movements where young people played an important role. Um, movements which are very, very active right now and movements where you can where you can expect sort of a good or a major development within the next few months or years. And we came up with 11 different protest movements all across the globe and um, researched, really, you know, dived deep and researched all 11, spoke to many people on the ground, connected us with, with many journalists, activists, obviously, other filmmakers, NGOs, and whatsoever. And at the end, we decided that the Hong Kong movement, um, the Fridays for Future movement in Uganda, and the Chilean protest movement, these three should be our three movements that we should should focus on, where we felt like there is a, a vacuum that could be filled. And then I think the next big step was to build a real big community in these three um, countries. And then we started researching potential protagonists, potential inter potentially interesting activists. Um, we spoke to a lot of them, obviously. At the end, we came up with a pool of 10 potentially interesting candidates for um, each movement, met all of them on the ground and just always asked ourselves and asked our team who is sort of the most representative person for this specific movement, um, have someone from the backbone of the movement. Um, and that's what we were trying to achieve by by selecting these three impressive um, protagonists. Yeah. For the listeners, I think it's, it might be a great time to to talk a little bit about each of them. Um, so you have Rayan, um, who is 23 and from Chile. Uh, and she, I, yeah, at the beginning of, of the documentary, she talks a lot about Chile being seen as one of the, the wealthiest countries of, of Latin America. Um, but actually saying that there's a huge wealth disparity because of the privatization of water, of education, of healthcare, um, that has kind of created this really intense uh, and severe frustration and resentment um, amongst the working class, um, which I found really fascinating. And then um, Hilda, you have, who is, I believe, 22 from Uganda, um, who I personally really connected with because my mum is from Uganda I have lots of family in Uganda but yeah she she spoke a lot about um about how deeply affected her and her family have been uh because of the droughts and there's no rainfall and how that has affected so many lives as well uh, across them and how they lost their homes that they lost their income she was unable to go to school for months on end um and that's kind of really what what forced her into action and then you've got pepper um from um hong kong who is kind of fighting for liberation for democracy um something that is is really fascinating to me when you're you're talking you speak a lot about which stories to tell but also the responsibility that you have 
not only but you and your team have in telling these stories and protecting their narrative and protecting them as well and with pepper uh, specifically i think something that that immediately jumps out to me is that she she spoke a lot during the documentary about essentially living a double life because she has to maintain her anonymity was that a very deep consideration for you when you decided to you know have her as one of the main subject and how were you able to approach that in a way where everybody felt safe I guess mm-hmm. yeah so um, amazing question um I think first of all you're absolutely right the, and just to expand that a little bit um for for listeners who might not have seen the documentary yet Pepper is a frontline activist in in Hong Kong meaning she's having a she, living a very, very risky life. She has a very risky job at the front line, is in direct exchange, in direct combat exchange, I would say, mm-hmm. with, with the police, trying to protect the core of the movement, the core of the of the big protest. And when we set up our team on the ground, I met with a lot of other activists and just asked them, you know, what's what's one main characteristic or what are a few main characteristics that many activists here in Hong Kong have? And many, many, many of them told me this kind of double life thing because because the protests are so risky and so somebody would say controversial, Mm. um, there are quite a lot of people who are joining the protests, you know, with the masks on and everything, but don't really tell their friends and their family members also to protect them, not because they don't trust them necessarily, but just because it might be safer for everyone to keep this a secret. Mm-hmm. But obviously, you know, what what does that do to to your mental health as well? You know, you're living through these brutal experiences on the front line where you see people die, where you see people getting injured, you get seeing your, your friends or your colleagues getting injured, and you can't speak with your family about this. You can't speak with perhaps your close friends about this. Um, I think this is a very individual and very unique challenge, especially for Hong Kong protesters, mm-hmm. because obviously they are also facing this big opponent um, you know, which is very skilled in using, you know, in, in, in surveillance and in, in, you know, reading text messages and, and tracing everything back. Um, so that has been, I would say, quite interesting in Hong Kong. And um, it's also part of the reason why we thought that Pepper is a good choice as a protagonist, because she really has this conflict. Now, the protection of the identity of Pepper, and not only Pepper, but all of the people you see in the documentary in Hong Kong, was a big, big um, question, a big challenge for us at the very beginning of the project. And before we even flew to Hong Kong, um, we established a very strong shoulder-to-shoulder collaboration with the Harvard University, and they have um, they developed technology which is called reverse deepfake technology um and that is basically to say very shortly a technology to anonymize 
um, film material without, hopefully without really the audience noticing, meaning that every single frame is being adjusted just a little bit, um, meaning that no facial recognition software can do anything with the specific material, but you are still technically seeing the real person. You know, you're not watching an actor and you're still hearing the real voice in a way. Because we had access to this technology, um, we were able we were able to use that technology on the ground. That helped creating a really strong and really good relationship, specifically with Pepper, I would say. It's so fascinating. I had, I, honestly, if you had not told me about this technology, I would have had absolutely no idea that that, that you know, you'd incorporate that into the, into the footage. How long were you on the ground with each of these, each of the people? Because... When you're talking, for example, about your experience with Pepper, it feels like you have this incredible bond and incredible level of trust, which feels like that's something that you can only build up with a with a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, we were able to spend um, almost three months with um, each each person um, wow. or in each in each country. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it was a big advantage that we were able to really, you know, use that time. Um, we were able to meet our protagonists almost on a daily basis. And I think that took away all unnecessary pressure. You know, this documentary, it, it doesn't shy away from what can be quite confronting and at times quite horrific scenes. You know, you've got, you really are there um, and it feels incredibly visceral as well when you're watching it, but you're there on the front line with these protesters in Hong Kong and similarly in um, Santiago, it is, it, it's, it's difficult at times to watch, but of course, incredibly necessary. What, what's the like mentality between you, your team and, um, and Rayan and Pepper before you are approaching those kinds of events? Yeah. What an, what an amazing question I have to say. Um, I think first of all, it was pretty clear to our team and to myself that if we want to do a film about young activism, we want to feature all aspects. Um, and if we are including a frontline activist, that also means obviously following her work um, at the actual frontline. And I remember the moments where you know, we were marching towards the actual front line and you were able to hear the gunshots. And I think the gunshots are something that was, that were always quite um, intimidating, surely, but also that was always a signal, all right, so we are now entering the zone. Um, and that meant that Pepper and Ryan they were just doing their thing. And we just always told them, don't mind about us. We might be here somewhere around you, might not be. Um, you do your thing. Absolutely, you don't need to worry about us at all. Um, I have to say that we did lots of preparation for these, for, for the filming at the front line. We actually went to a frontline preparation camp in, in Birmingham where, you know, they, they're setting up different frontline situations and where you are trying to get a sense of what the physics are and what 
what works, what doesn't, how loud it actually will be. I think that's something that is underestimated quite quite often, that just volume. Mm. Um, and just the fact that if a gun goes off, for this specific moment, you won't be able to hear anything. You just hear the gunshot. As soon as we approached the front line, our team was extremely focused and very, very much, yeah, just in the zone. And we spoke with each other, um, you know, using little radios and we were just communicating constantly. There was not really a big space for emotions. And I'm just saying this because um, we actually, five times it happened that we saw people dying right in front of us. And obviously, you know, these are moments that are still haunting us. I have to say, first of all, we are, because we saw that, we are in, we're not the um, victims here, obviously, because we actively chose to do that. Mm. And I would say it's even, you know, it's just a terrible situation for people on the ground because they sometimes almost have no other choice other than protesting. Nevertheless, though, it had a great impact on our whole team in the long run. Um, And it was interesting that when it happened, we noticed it, but we didn't really say anything about it. It wasn't like, oh my God, somebody just died here. We were so focused on the actual work, on keeping us safe in a way and trying to help where we can, that there was just no real space for for you know sharing yeah sharing emotions or or um yeah anything like that god that's so terrifying were there any times genuinely where you felt like your own life was in danger while you were shooting this yeah i mean there was one there was one specific moment um in chile so in chile the tactic of many press um people and, and journalists was when trying to capture a frontline scene when trying to be there um we would always walk up to the policeman before and just sort of introduce ourselves when everything was still quiet and we, we, we would have a chat we would you know sh- sort of show them our our camera we would show what what kind of material we filmed already obviously the goal of this was to make them realize, okay, so these are just filmmakers, you know, these are not here to to do any harm to anyone. And I remember one time when we just had a really long discussion with with quite a few police officers, and we were just walking back, we literally just turned our backs and walked in the opposite direction, you know, said goodbye, walked away. And I was just looking behind my shoulder and was trying to to look at my or look at the cameraman was just trying to tell me something and I just realized and saw that a few of these police officers just pointed their guns um, towards our direction and I thought okay so perhaps either they are now shooting at us or something is you know right in front of us or behind us didn't really see anything and just was able to grab the cameraman sort of you know smash him to the ground Um, and then we were hit by several um, rubber bullets which is the thing that they are firing um, at the front line. And there is the saying that, you know, that a human body can survive three to four rubber bullets when completely unprotected. We luckily were protected. We had this whole, you know, full body gear on. 
Nevertheless, I think when we were just lying there and when we were just obviously being shot at, um, that was a moment where I wasn't sure if we will be able to make it home. That is so frightening. I can't even imagine what that situation is like. Um, it actually kind of brings me to talking about the stakes because I think that's something that um, really is, again, very prevalent in this documentary is, is there are serious stakes for each one of these protagonists. Hilda says at the end of the documentary um, in this what is a very emotionally rousing speech at a, a climate conference. Um, she shares her story. The quote that she says is, it was a question of survival and death, and I am lucky to still be surviving. And it's at this point that she kind of breaks down and it's really, really hard to watch. It's a very emotional moment. And with uh, Rayan, you know, she speaks a lot about um, her own experience, but also throughout the documentary, she visits a family um, of a young protester, Abel, who really tragically um, is killed during a massive protest in Santiago and speaks again to her own father, who I think, does he lose his eye or is he, his eye is um, hit from a rubber, a rubber bullet. So, you know, it's, there are some serious stakes at play here for each of these uh, protagonists. And it's, it's a lot, actually, as a viewer to sit with. Um, and you really, yeah, you're really rooting for each and every one of them because they're they're putting their lives at risk in, you know, for, for the cause. I think, interestingly enough, I would, I would quote Ryan again, who said that, um, you know, people say that going into the streets is, is dangerous could be a lot of stake you know you could you could lose your life you could lose your eyesight um you could lose friends you can see people dying but not going to the streets would further increase the problems that we face in the future but that is now obviously a really interesting situation i would say that many of us find themselves in is the fact that we can either sort of abide by the rules, we can either accept certain political circumstances and not criticize and not stand up and and can just sort of try to live our lives, try to find good compromises. Or, and the advantage of that being, you know, nobody really, you're not on the spotlight, you're not really taking any risks, Nobody can really say anything against you. You're just doing your thing. Or the other opportunity, the other possibility is to actively stand up and to actively fight for um, a better future, to actively do something. However, for example, in let's say Germany, right? We have sort of five to six main political parties. Mm. And, you know, as soon as you are, as soon as someone is entering just one of these parties, he would, he or she would immediately be subject to to criticism, subject to, oh, gosh, why is she joining this party? I mean, why? I mean, who does she think she is? And I think that tells us a lot about how society is working. I mean, just look at the many comments that 
Hilda is receiving nowadays or other climate activists are receiving. So standing up and, and you know, fighting for a better future always comes with quite a significant price. And I must say that I just utmost my most profound and, and deepest respect to everyone who accepts this price, who pays this price, but has no other opportunity to further do their activism. And um, I think that's a very interesting conflict that, again, um, that many are, are facing right now. Mm. Um, yeah, It's a huge burden, um, personally, uh, to take on. Um, thinking about activism uh, and the ways in which, you know, movements and protesting um, have developed. I think if you go all the way back to, you know, the 70s or the 80s, these movements really relied on word of mouth and news coverage to push their message. And I think the internet has clearly been, you know, it's played a huge, huge part uh, when it comes to continuing discussions around activism and climate change, for example. Um, and what I found really interesting about, you know, in your documentary, which you've actually um, already mentioned, is the frontline workers in Hong Kong, they actually create these protesting maps showing escape routes, roadblocks, um, transport updates, the density of protesters all in real time to help support these campaigners. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's really amazing, really, what, what they can do. But then on the other side of that, you have, you know, the Internet, which can be this very dark and vitriolic place where you have climate deniers and anti-vaxxers and, you know, hashtag fake news. And I guess the question I want to ask to you is, do you think the Internet has been, you know, a greater good or a greater evil when it comes to facilitating these discussions? It's a very interesting point that you that you just made. I think the internet is, you know, at the end of the day, I think that the internet is a is a really good tool, um, and many activists and many people who are sort of obviously fighting for a better future were able to use this tool in order to connect themselves, in order to present their ideas and their visions and their opinions in a very accessible way. And I think that's of great value. That um, enables us to have this kind of exchange. It also democratizes this kind of exchange. But obviously there are people, um, and we have seen this, for example, in the presidential campaign of, of Donald Trump, obviously, who are mistreating and misusing the internet in a very brutal and also, let me underscore, illegal way. It's not allowed what many of those people, you know, centering out around the work of um, Cambridge Analytica were doing. That's not allowed. That's against the rules. It's illegal. Um, nevertheless, though, they were able to do it. They were able to do their work, um, their, their literally evil work, and um, influence people in a very brutal um, way. I think personally that obviously we need to find a way to make sure that the internet stays a safe space. I would say the internet was of great support and help when it came to many movements that we were able to to follow. Yeah, I think what you've said um, 
really speaks to the nuance of this discussion on online. And actually, me even asking you that question is kind of playing into the rhetoric of the internet, which is this kind of um, this the the binariness of you know, are you a good or a bad person? Are you right or are you wrong? It's this very divisive discourse that people really engage in now. Um, I wanted to just very quickly talk to you about the climate emergency because this is a huge part of Hilda's journey. Her final speech says, your bed might be comfortable now, but it won't be for long. You will soon feel the heat that we feel every day. What she's saying is exactly right. We often um, use these excuses of these issues um, not feeling close enough to home um and in order to act and i just found her statement really poignant because you know fundamentally it's affecting all of us um since you filmed this documentary in 2019 we have had the cop 26 summit with all of the world leaders with their main goal of course being to achieve net zero emissions and stop the temperature of the world increasing above um 1.5 degrees i was wondering what are your thoughts on the outcome of that summit? And I know that you can't speak on Hilda's behalf, but I wondered if you kind of, what you think her thoughts are on how this conversation is unfolding? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I can say, and this should be a disclaimer, I think for the whole podcast, I obviously, I'm not really in the position to speak for. Yeah, of course. But I can, however, sort of repeat what they um, told me um, and what they what they shared with me. We have a really amazing uh, group, um, the four of us, so all three protagonists and myself, um, and we, um, you know, keep ourselves updated on a regular basis. There are al- there's also a lot of fun making about me, obviously, but um, <laughs> we, we have this amazing, yeah, just this amazing group chat. I think it's it's really cool. Hilda, let me start with what Hilda thought about the C40 summit, sort of a summit where she gave this specific speech. The C40 summit was in Copenhagen. Um, it featured mayors and um, lots of political staff, political staff from over 40 cities all across the globe. Um, it was a real big opportunity. And what came out of it? Literally nothing. They weren't able, even able to um, agree on a you know closed statement. They they weren't really able to outline any goals at all. And um, at the end, for Hilda, it felt like an amazing opportunity for everyone to give speeches, to be seen, to, you know, to be on, on photographs, to speak with the press, with the media. And everybody just did a lot of talking. But when it came to you know, discuss- discussing specific goals, all of a sudden the room became very, very quiet. And I think that was a real turning point for Hilda, to be completely honest, at least from what she told me. She, after the conference, um, said that she's not really interested in in this sort of glamorous, big, um, yeah, events anymore. She would just like to focus on her rather domestic activism, which is actually helping people, which is actually informing people, which... Um, is providing these kind of short-term successes, but long-term um, strategy goals that that we need right now. Um, and so, when you know, COP twenty-six was without any real, 
yeah, w- w- without many outcomes, Hilda wasn't surprised. Mm-hmm. Hilda wasn't surprised at all. Um, and just thought, yeah, I mean, what else did you expect? Um, it's up to us, you know, the young people, the people on the streets, um, the sort of average workers um, to really inspire and create the kind of change we want to see, including, you know, including filmmakers, including podcast hosts, including everyone. Um, and we can't really expect to to see this kind of leadership anymore from the very top, meaning we have to do it. Um, and I think that's Hilda's general opinion on on this big, big topic, I would say, yeah. That's really interesting because it kind of um, echoes really the the speech, the well now famous speech of um, Greta Thunberg where she said, you know, it's blah, blah, blah. And everyone made fun of her, but it's true. Everyone loves to talk and they love the sound of their own voice. But then when it comes to actual action, you know, it, everyone always falls short. So um, it's really interesting to hear to hear her point of view and how she's, yeah, I guess pivoted her direction um, and to make her work meaningful. I have a couple of questions from some listeners that I wanted to ask you. The first being, um, what can I do, I, the big I, um, (laughs) in my personal life to have um, an effect on the events that are happening now across the world? whether that's financial aid or changing my personal behaviors. Yeah, I think um, there are sort of two basic answers I always I always give when I'm being asked that question. First of all, when it comes to financial aid, um, I think there are a lot of amazing um, NGOs and associations out there that need every support that they could get, depending a little bit on sort of what your m- major political goal is collecting collecting signatures this is something that you know takes a few seconds to sign it takes a few seconds to forward to a few people and actually can have an amazing amazing outcome the second measurement you can take is um what i call microactivism meaning for example i now live in beaconsfield which is um west of london and we have two newly arrived families from Hong Kong. They fled Hong Kong because of the national security law, arrived here in the UK. Um, It's the first time ever here in the UK. It's the first time ever in Europe. And when they arrived, obviously, they didn't really know anything about sort of our perhaps social rules in a way or just how things work here in the UK, how supermarkets work, you know, how the post office works, you know. And... um, a few friends in the neighborhood and and myself, we just, whenever we went to the supermarket, we just text them, hey, do you need anything at the moment? Do you have enough, you know, do you have enough milk? Do you have enough eggs? Do you need anything at all? And I mean, just imagine, because they sometimes texted us, actually, yes, I need, you know, tomatoes, this and this and this and this. That perhaps saved them half an hour or a full hour um, during the day where they, were, where they were then able to focus on other things. And so I would suggest if you really want to, you know, become even more active, 
just look out on Facebook. Perhaps there are some 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 Facebook groups that are interesting, which are focused on, let's say, helping newly arrived Hong Kongers or or um, similar. So yeah, I think these are sort of two very basic steps that I would throw in. Um, um, and also that being said, I'm obviously not an expert on this, but <laughs> I think, yeah. But it is that exact thing that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be doing all of these, you know, large things or throwing tens of thousands of pounds at something. It can be something as simple as signing a petition or helping a friend. And those things can be incredibly meaningful. Um, the second question is, which insight were you most surprised to uncover whilst filming Dear Future Children? I think something... Um, we spoke a lot about um, the protagonists themselves, but something I discussed quite often with um, other filmmakers and other photographers and also other activists, obviously, and I think that also relates to to the podcast in a way is sort of how do you keep going, how do you keep your shit together, and you know, at Q and A's people sometimes ask, what was the biggest challenge when doing Dear Future Children, when creating Dear Future Children, and there are very fancy answers to that. You know, you can speak about you know our collaboration with Harvard, you can speak about filming at the front line, but the actual biggest challenge was you know, where these these long dark nights, these nights where you are sitting in front of your laptop at, at 3 a.m. still having so much stuff to do, so many answer, unanswered emails, having the feeling that it's not going in the right direction, having the feeling that you could do better. Are you really the right person to direct this or whatsoever? And I spoke with quite a lot of people about that and something I learned and something I really remind myself quite often is the fact that every person has a character and this character is usually divided into different parts. You can even say it's divided into different personas. So for example, I myself have one person in my character who is very, very strict, very organized, very focused, um, and who doesn't like unread emails, who doesn't like unread messages on, on Signal or WhatsApp, and who would like to be very reliable and who would like to have a good reputation. So that's sort of the one important character, important person. But there's this other person that, you know, likes video games, that likes um, just hanging out with friends, that even likes, you know, going on a date sometimes. And I think you are always on your best if these persons are negotiating with each other, not working against each other. Meaning that sometimes, and I, this is definitely a mistake I made during the past two years, sometimes one person was very dominant and suppressed the others. Having spoken to you today, I can see that you're an incredibly thoughtful person in how you um, speak to people but also how you approach your work and how you perceive the world and I'm sure that when approaching this documentary I know you, you've mentioned that you had you know hours and hours of conversations in pubs with your team um, and thought you know very deeply about 
the impact that you wanted when you first started thinking about this and con- concepting this idea what to you was the thing that you wanted to get out of this i think we wanted to create a platform for young activists to tell their stories we wanted to shed a light on them we wanted to show that young cinema can be a place of political inspiration a place of political exchange and most importantly a place to listen to each other yeah absolutely um what i don't want to underestimate to the listeners is also this incredibly strong will um for hope that you know is the undercurrent of this entire documentary and i think is what really you know the the um audience the viewer is really left with at the end so thank you fran so much for chatting and sitting down with me today and talking me through everything it's been an absolute pleasure to hear about your background um and about the ins and outs of making this documentary and everything that that you your team and and um these protagonists had to go through thank you so 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 much i cannot um express my thanks enough for coming and chatting with me today it's been really enlightening thank you so much it was an amazing pleasure speaking with you and we'll absolutely um you know continue this conversa- conversation hopefully soon and yeah thank you so much what thank you and this has been the answer 20s and i'll be back with another episode very soon bye